The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. Hey folks, welcome. Welcome to tonight's uh, episode of The Good Time Show. Wherever you're calling in from, I don't know if it's morning, noon, or night, but you know, I hope you're having a good day. For folks who are calling us in for the first, who are joining us for the first time, welcome. This is a show Sharam and I do a few times a week, and we generally tend to cover uh, topics around tech, startups, entrepreneurship. We sometimes also cover topics on you know fashion and music and that kind of thing, and we bring in some really interesting guests uh, to talk about creativity, their passion, and all of that. And today, it's it's kind of this one-off, very special episode because we have this like whole crew of people. And I'm going to let Shriram go introduce all of them. But, you know, for folks who are joining in just for this episode uh, to talk and to cover all things crypto, welcome. We're really excited to have you here. Shriram, who do we have here? Uh, thanks, Arti. As Arti pointed out, this is a very special episode. We want to do it at a special time. Um, it's not often that I get to have on some of the amazing people that I work with. Uh, and so this kind of a like crossover uh, because we have something really, really special um, happening today. So uh, with that, let me introduce uh, the crew here. Uh, these are all folks uh, I'm very, very lucky to get to work with. Uh, so they're all very dear, near and dear to me um, and probably need no introduction to the folks who've been, who've been following technology, definitely crypto, or, you know, they've all been, a lot, most of them have been past guests on this show. Uh, today we have uh, you know, um, um, you know, from from the crypto team at Andreessen, we have Chris Dixon, uh, Katie Hahn. Uh, we have for the first time making her first appearance on the Good Time Show, Ariana. Hey, Ariana, welcome! Thank Woo! you. Excited to be here. Woohoo! So excited. I mean, I have lots of great stuff to ask Ariana. Uh, also, so, uh, making his first appearance on the Good Time Show, uh, Anthony Albanese, the new COO of All Things Super A16Z. So, welcome, Anthony, and congratulations. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Um, and last but not least, uh, you know, um, you know, somebody, you know, who I think you know, uh, we have Ali Yahya, who's the newest general partner at A16Z. And Ali, um, Chris, Katie, uh, today you announced uh, Crypto Fund 3 uh, for folks who haven't seen it. Um, you know, we're going to dig into everything, you know, on the team side today, but I want to go back in time. Um, and I think, Chris, you, you know, you and K Katie here, like, talk to us about how crypto at Andreessen started. Like, what was the first ever deal? How did you get into the space? I'm just going to walk us through the history because I think there were some crazy early years, um, you know, yeah. uh, circa 2012, 2013. So talk to us about that time. Yeah, wow, that was, that was going way back. But um, I, I, you know, I was interested in myself. I think probably Mark, I, Mark, maybe you have your own story. Um, I think we all kind of thought it was interesting. It was like, you know, Bitcoin, I mean, 2012, 13, it was Bitcoin, right? Um, and so we were, you know, we were investing pretty seriously, um, but it wasn't like a crypto fund. Like it wasn't like a full, you know, but there wasn't back then there, I met a lot of companies back then. Um, they just, there weren't enough to really justify like a full fund. Like it just wasn't, didn't have as, enough momentum, I think. Um, and I think the big turning point was probably, you know, the Bitcoin forks and just kind of Bitcoin evolving and then Ethereum, of course, and then all the kind of things that that sort of spawned after that. And the space just got kind of much bigger and more dynamic. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, look, I've always had this. I wrote a blog post years ago. Mm -hmm. 
called something like when the, what the smartest people do on the weekends is the, is what everyone else will do at work in 10 years. And this, this kind of related concept next to big thing starts at looking like a toy and just had this view that like, you know, what are the smart kind of technologists doing and excited about? Um, and so I spent a lot of time on that and that, that led me down some blind alleys, frankly, mm-hmm. and also down like the crypto alley. And, you know, we did other things that year, like, uh, Mark and I did Oculus together. And that was sort of this, you know, theory, like VR was another thing that kind of, you know, it was like Kickstarter um, and, you know, VR stuff and like 3D printing and just kind of, I don't know, exploring kind of super futuristic new areas. Um, I think the difference with crypto is it's software. It's, I don't know, a bunch of things, but it just kind of somehow became a real movement. Um, and I think just the, this, the design, the architecture, the ideas, the kind of the expressiveness of the space is so powerful. Um, and anyway, so we just kind of, you know, I, I'm not going to say like we knew back then, but we knew it was interesting. We didn't know how big it could be. And then as it evolved, we kind of, you know, adjusted our investment accordingly. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, today with our big fund announcement, I think we really think it's now at the product market fit stage and it's going to really break out. So. Um, do you remember? No, I'm Mark, curious. Mark, Mark yeah. should chime in, though. Mark, yeah, Mark, I'm curious. Mark, you know, Mark, I, was, uh, Mark and I were, I think, the ones he was the most involved with it back then, besides me. Mark, give us your history with crypto. I'm curious. I don't think I've actually heard this from you in the past. <clears throat> yeah, so you know, it took it took me a little time to kind of figure it out, but um, so I don't I don't think I was like super early on it, but I, but I will say like when I when I did figure it out, kind of around this time with Chris and with with Balaji, um, you know, the thing that just like left so to speak, is uh, we, we always, going all the way back to the early 90s, uh, early mid-90s with the original browsers and then with Netscape, like we, and the sort of modern consumer internet that we know today, like we always had the idea back then. We always wanted internet native money. Mm-hmm. Like that, that was always a thing, the thing that we wanted. And in fact, there were ideas in the 90s. There were, you know, there were precedents to Bitcoin. There were ideas all the way back in the early 90s around digital cash. Um, there's this great document, um, which is worth reading if people haven't read it. It's called the Cyphernomicon. Mm-hmm. And it's written, you can find PDFs of it online. It's written by this guy, Tim May, who was an early leader of what we're called the cypherpunks. And this is like early, it's like 90, 91, 92, super early. Um, and, um, and he basically describes like in this document, sort of the future of how cryptography will get used for everything. And then part of that is digital money. And then there were these different programs, like uh, there was DigiCash, which was a startup in the mid nineties to try to do this and so forth. But like we always wanted it. And of course, the reason we wanted it was because we wanted a way to do kind of internet native payments, right? So we wanted a way to kind of have payments built right into the browser or built right into every web server. Um, you know, so you could just basically charge money. You could build build money in as an What's incentive. This, isn't it error code 402, Mark, or something? Right? Isn't it, yeah, right. Exactly. It was actually yeah, yeah. Right. In the original <laughs> HTTP protocol, in the very original yeah. protocol, there's an yep. error code specifically for payment required. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and right, and the, the idea was right. You, you know, you're on a news site, and like there's some piece of premium content or something, or you want to download a song or download a movie or whatever it is, and you should be able to click to pay. And like we just, it didn't like the internet native stuff. It just we didn't have Bitcoin. Like the we didn't we didn't have the blockchain. We didn't have the the, the sort of technical breakthrough. You know, that kind of uh, you know happened in 2009. And so there were various attempts to do this that didn't quite make it. And then we tried at, at Netscape in the 90s. Like we tried. We worked with Mastercard, um, and actually Microsoft at the time worked with Visa. Um, and kind of we, 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 we try to kind of build kind of, you know, if we can't have new fancy Internet money, we try to at least get old inter- you know, old money <laughs> right into legacy money um, into the thing. And like that never worked because like the credit card network is not set up for micropayments and there's, you know, there's no Internet native sense of authentication and so forth. And so that that never worked. 
And so and it's like, you know, for people today who don't like, you know, ads on the Internet, like the reason why we have an advertising ecosystem on the Internet is precisely because we never had Internet native money. Right. It's like 20 years later. And it's like, oh, my God, this is actually the technical breakthrough. Like, it's, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, it or they is, mm-hmm. um, you know, has actually cracked the code on this. And then and then at that point, like my mind, was, my mind was blown wide open when I figured that out. It's been blown wide open ever since, which is like, OK. Now that we have this, now we have internet native money. And then, of course, beyond that, it's not just internet native money. It's also internet native trust. You know, it's internet and it's internet native contracts and internet native digital property and so forth and so on. And it's just like, oh, okay, this is like, it's like the second half of the internet has finally materialized in front of us, you know, but but running on the first half. Um, and so that's that's why we got so cranked up at the time. Uh, do you remember, Mark? I'm curious. And also, Chris, do you remember, uh, you know, I, I remember getting pulled into crypto when I read Satoshi's paper. I remember the early, early days of, uh, you know, of when it, there was Mt. Gox and all those folks. Do you remember like any aha moment where you felt like, oh, wait, this could be a real thing? Yeah, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think like architecturally to me, like it just immediately seemed like the right way to do it. Like you had, I mean, like for people that were into security, like I had a security company in, you know, 2005 and like people that know like hash cash, like a lot of the ideas of Bitcoin, these things don't ever just come like out of nowhere, right? Like they came out of all these different ideas. And uh, it's funny because Dan Bonet works with us now from Stanford and like Dan and I used to sit around in 2005 and talk about hash cash and like how to do a startup around it and things. So like so it was like the, the ideas were out there and people had talked about like digital money. It had been going on for like 20 years. It's, just, it's like all these tech movements, like these ideas had been out there and it seemed like the right architecture. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, it was so shrouded in like kind of this you know mysterious dark web mm-hmm. how do you use it i mean like coinbase was an epiphany for me like just see, it was the first time you know they, they described it as gmail for crypto right like make it accessible um wait was it the yeah, tagline i didn't know that was it the tagline for coinbase was it the pitch uh i think i don't know if, i think it was gmail i think it was something i remember that deck i think it was it was a G, it was some consumer product i think it was gmail or iphone or something like that yeah yeah and they always, Fred and Brian always described it as that, you know, so like, you know, Bitcoin D is a SMTP server and they're, they're the easy, you know, web, you know, kind of web enabled version of it for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was it. Another, another good metaphor that I heard as well yeah. is uh, it's like GitHub for Git. <laughs> yeah. That's right. a good one. Yep. Yeah, I, would also exactly. just, I would also say, look at like a key killer moment. And, and this continues to be the case. And it's actually fairly amazing. This doesn't strike more people as amazing. But I think it's amazing, which is like the first time you see a Bitcoin transaction just mm-hmm. like happen yeah. where like a large amount of money um, just literally transfers from one wallet to another. Yeah. And it like transfers within like a few minutes. And like, oh, my God, it like for anybody who's ever done like an, a wire transfer. Yeah. Everybody's, right. Like the comparison between that and a wire transfer and God help you, an international wire transfer. Yeah. Like it, it just stares you right in the face. And it's actually one of these things where it's almost you know, everybody's always like, you know, what are the killer apps for crypto? And it's always like. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, how about the yeah. ability to move money without having to wait three days, right? And without getting it hung up in some, you know, bank somewhere. Like, even just that is just like an eye-opening thing for people who know how the current financial system yeah. works. Um, and I think that 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 I think that actually blows a lot of people away when they see it for the first time. Oh, yeah. totally. Uh, okay, I want to fast forward a couple of years, right? Like post Coinbase. I think what people on the outside may not realize is how unusual it was for a venture capital firm to invest in crypto. And Chris, Katie, you folks set a lot of this up. 
I'm not kind of just here. How was it like, you know, trying to invest in crypto in those early years? Because I think even structurally, you know, it's just really, really hard for a classic venture capital firm to do. Well, particularly tokens, like buying tokens is the trick, like from a regulatory and, you know, like custody, the, like what are the legal terms, you know, who are you buying it from, you know, just sort of the whole kind of regulatory kind of framework around it. How do you store them? Like that was the big, I think, thing for us to kind of cross. I mean, that's why we ultimately first spun out the crypto fund as a separate organization and then, mm-hmm. you know, became an RIA and all these other things. And have spent literally, I don't know, God knows how much time. I mean, everyone on this clubhouse knows how much time we spend on it um, to this day, you know, on all these kinds of topics. I mean, every everything you touch in crypto, like accounting, legal, like literally getting a bank account, like everything is, a, is just like, you know, you have to start from scratch. Um, and, so wait, w- you know, walk, like walk the, crypto, the crypto founders yeah. deal with it more than I do, so I don't want to, you know, sound um, like... You know, like, like uh, you know, they, they do the really hard work, but but it is it is non-trivial to do to sort of set yourself up to buy tokens, and, you know, directly buy crypto. Even before that, Chris, I remember yeah. the um, yeah, that was before that's with Crypto Fund One. Yeah. With yeah. Sriram, we learned a lot with Fund One that we implemented in Fund Two. We learned a lot of Fund Two. We plan to implement in Fund Three yeah. as learnings. But like, think back, Chris, to the earlier days before the first Crypto Fund was set up. I mean, yeah, I, I won't tell the details, but. At some point, Chris had to pledge himself on a napkin or something, you know, take all responsibility for anything that ever happens. I mean, tell that story. <laughs> um, I'm kind of only half joking, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, these were risky days early. Yeah, I know yeah, we did. That's right. We went all in uh, before the crypto fund in our regular venture fund. And Ali, Ali was there for a lot of it. Um, but I guess our view is always that like the, the new thing, like part of the whole kind of breakthrough in crypto is it's a new asset class. It's the tokens, which are the native asset class of information networks. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the big breakthroughs and we need to own those. Um, and so kind of that was the guiding principle was we have to set up yeah. an organization that is structured to, you know, to be the best yeah. place for entrepreneurs to raise money when they're selling tokens and the best place to hold them and the best place for LPs to get exposure to that. And so uh, so if, if I remember correctly, and this was before yeah. my time, so um, yeah, obviously, but at one time, so for folks who understand, like you folks actually went and left, you know, sort of the physical offices of Andreessen Horowitz and actually set up shop elsewhere, right? Uh, yeah. And kind of super scrappy. Like, talk to us about it, because I think you guys went through some really interesting, unusual experiences <laughs> there. Okay, well, we, we had a few temporary offices. Um, and, and actually, we were reminiscing about this, a, a small group of us the other day. Chris, I don't know if you realized, I don't know if you got the reference in my Slack today that we were next to an unlicensed lashes lab. I don't, I don't know, know if you, if you fully there. paid attention to that, but um, I don't know what that means. That sounds <laughs> terrifying. Like, yeah, sure. yeah, well, imagine Dapper know. Labs coming into pitch, Ariana, and then they're like, no, this is the eyelash studio. <laughs> and it's unlicensed. And yet they still took our money. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> true story. What a commitment. Yeah. yeah. Now, uh, now, by the time the second we did have a second temporary office, and by then we had upgraded the digs. You know, it was not next to an unlicensed lashes <laughs> lab. Um, and and by the way, then um, those of our partners from the other funds, you know, the bio funds, enterprise fintech, the main funds, 
um, loved the office space in San Francisco, so started kind of coming in. And then it became the Andreessen Horowitz San Francisco office. But there was a prior office, a predecessor office um, next to a Lashes lab. It was a temporary office, yeah. the key to go to the bathroom. You know, you could hear yeah. through the walls. And that was the original San Francisco presence of the first crypto fund. I love it. I remember once meeting Chris in one of those and Chris was the only person or really any piece of furniture around. And I remember telling him like, okay, this is like the weirdest office space I've ever seen. But uh, (laughs) it was was weird. Uh, um, Okay, so I want to come back to this one and how we're setting it up. Um, And I think one of the things that kind of really interests me because, you know, I'm not as deep into crypto as you folks are, is some of the capabilities that you're building out. And Ali, see if I could jump you know, if if we kind of throw to you for a second, you know, it's super interesting to hear what we, you know, you guys can now do around staking, delegating, governance. Talk to us about some of the technical capabilities that you guys are thinking about. Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, as as Chris was saying earlier, like everything you touch in crypto tends to have enormous operational complexity associated with it, and that started from the very beginning with things like Bitcoin, which is required like very secure, specialized custody. But then as, as the space has evolved, the kinds of things that you need to worry about and think mm-hmm. about uh, have only also kind of in turn become more complex. And there are increasingly complex kinds of behaviors and actions that you can take in the crypto world these days, because now it's not really just a form of sovereign or decentralized money. It's also a whole new computing paradigm. And uh, as a result, there, there are kinds of things that uh, the community needs to be able to get together to do to make sure that these systems work correctly. And one of those things is staking, which is essentially taking the tokens that you might own for a particular network and um, locking them up with the with the network alongside providing uh, actual like hardware and computational capabilities to provide the network with functionality and with security as a way of making the network actually do what it's what it's supposed to do. Uh, and so staking is one of the things that that one needs to be able to do in kind of this more modern crypto world. And the kinds of operational uh, like uh, capabilities that you need to be able to do that are are more complex than they used to be. And they include um, sort of, again, kind of custody, but custody in a way where the, the private keys that you are safeguarding need to be somehow accessible so that they can sign transactions live in real time and be able to participate in the network. Uh, they require making sure that the computer that you're using to participate in the network has enough uptime and is, is like, it's going to be reliable enough to, to sort of ensure that the, the network is doing what it's supposed to do. And there's a whole host of other kind of capabilities that we need to make sure to be able to, to support. And so as a result, like with this new fund, we started doing this with the previous fund, but with this new fund, a, a one big objective is to build out the, kind of the what we call the, the network operations team. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fully to fully uh, kind of staff the kind of the team that that will stay on top of all of the the requirements on the operational side to be able to participate in full force. Uh, well, we should mention have, like, the uh, the university governance things too, the nonprofits. Yeah, exactly. Another yeah, another yeah. component of this is that these are these are decentralized systems that um, need some way to be able to change and evolve, and right. so. More, like more modern crypto systems have governance systems by which stakeholders and participants in the network can can vote and can opt for changing the system in some way. And so the whole process of governance um, didn't really exist at all in the early days of crypto. And now, and now is a very, very kind of important component, a very important way uh, for 
participants for for stakeholders to participate. And so governance, uh, like 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 sort of stakeholders like like us who have a very significant portion of the network, can sway uh, the governance process in, in a significant way. But one option that that you we have is to be able to delegate some of our voting power to other people in the ecosystem as a way of involving other independent actors, other independent voices, and making sure that the network continues to be decentralized. And so one of the efforts that we've uh, engaged with mm -hmm. more recently, uh, uh, Jeff Amico and our team has led this has led this effort, is to build out this uh, delegate network that includes a number of uh, universities, like blockchain clubs at various universities, like the Stanford Blockchain Club, the equivalent at Cornell and Princeton and Harvard and Berkeley, and so on, as well as some of the startups in the space, like uh, Gauntlet and Dharma, and there's there's a number of of other like Argent, uh, other other kind of stakeholders in the space that should have a voice and should be able to participate in this governance process. And it, like kind of like the list continues, and it's an important an important aspect here because we we do want to make sure that these systems are governed in a way that is truly representative of the entire ecosystem. And you don't want just a single player or a single set of players or, or a kind or class of players to have outsized control. Uh, so we take that very and seriously and want to do our part to make sure that, mm -hmm. that we can help these systems be truly decentralized. Yeah, and on that delegate point, um, you know, one of the great things that Jeff has been doing and, and Alex Pruden before him uh, was they, you know, have these universities where they're going out and recruiting these university groups and Ali, like you just mentioned, also kind of crypto firms in the space, um, crypto projects. But then now they've started expanding it to NGOs mm -hmm. around the world. We will be announcing some of those soon. And even corporate uh, corporate entities like Deutsche Telekom, you know, yesterday, um, Stello announced that uh, we announced at Andreessen Hearts Crypto that we're staking our and delegating, I'm sorry, our tokens, our Cello tokens, a portion of them to Deutsche Telekom which, you know, that's a pretty traditional, large institution company um, over in Germany, parent company of T-Mobile and many others. And then Visa is another example. So we're really kind of trying to broaden how we think about our delegation program. And it's something that, you know, we find protocol founders care about because it contributes to this ethos of decentralization. Uh, Katie, this is actually an interesting topic because, uh, and this is something which I, you know, got up to speed on only fairly recently. For folks who are outside the crypto world, I think they have a model of how a venture capital firm, which is on a cap table, interacts with the founding team, you know, has a say in the governance of the company. How similar or different is that from, you know, the role of a firm like ours when it comes to, you know, uh, being a responsible stakeholder in a token? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, in the context of, I think this is what you're asking, in the context of mm -hmm. delegation, like we were just talking about, we also have to prove that, you know, we're not really delegating our tokens, but then kind of exercising behind the scenes control. Um, so we really are kind of giving up control for some portion of a time uh, during the pendency of the contract we have with the delegate. Is that what you're asking, Sriram? Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, inter it's interesting because uh -huh. in some ways it's, you know, it's like, you know, you have a, amazing, a really smart set of people who have built something really intriguing, you know, of which, uh, you know, you're now incentivized, you own a percentage of it. And I think the, uh, the governance structures in crypto versus uh, the governance structures in a classic corporation are really interesting. Super interesting. You know, one of the things we're starting to see now, and this is new with kind of, I would say that Crypto Fund 2, we weren't really encountering this to the same degree in Crypto Fund 1, is now we're seeing protocols where, you know, we used to be able to go to protocol founders and 
for example, like sell us some of your tokens or, you know, you, they set aside a portion for investors, like kind of in your in the classic sense, you know, funds, um, crypto funds. And now one of the things we've started to see is, well, we don't have any of those tokens or we're not selling them. And actually, you need to write a proposal and mm. let the community decide if you get any. So in other words, it's very different from traditional VC in that there's no founder essentially to pitch you're pitching your value proposition of not just money, but, you know, helpful money, um, helpful investors to the entire community of token holders where tokens launched. That's very interesting and that's very different. Uh, playing this out and, you know, uh, and Ali, um, because I know we spoke about this on a previous episode. Uh, one thing I want to get to jump into is the idea of DAOs, you know, uh, um, which I think we've spoken about multiple times. Uh, how do you see this uh DAOs as a replacement structure for classic C-Corps where you might have just somebody sitting in a remote part of the world. We talked about like people in India jumping in. Um, how do you see this, uh, you know, in the future of crypto? Because one thing that's really interesting to me is how instead of, you now have people from all around the world uh, uh, coming together, building something really interesting, uh, all on these crypto-based economic and governance structures, as opposed to working for RSUs and stock options and all the trading structures we might be interested in. So, Ali, I'm kind of, I know we spoke about this in the past in the episode, but I think that's, it was super interesting to me too. Yeah, of course. I think, I mean, DAOs are kind of like the full expression of, of crypto, because crypto is fundamentally a social technology. It's a technology that allows various participants to come to consensus about uh, a particular a particular system. And uh, DAOs are like the most general version of that, where you can use software to program in the ways by which you would want different people to organize themselves or to, to coordinate and, and kind of agree upon something. And I think like the first order, the first, the first obvious thing to try is to try to port over the governance structures that we have in the, in the kind of the traditional world. So we look at the way that C-Corps work today. We look at the work that, uh, the way that kind of LLCs work today. And we try to like write code that mimics those structures, but are now implemented in pure software and have no intermediaries and have no legal requirements. And that's an improvement because now these things are orders of magnitude more efficient. They are much cheaper. They're easier to set up. You can spin them up with a couple of clicks. It takes minutes as opposed to months. It doesn't cost you $80,000 in legal fees. Um, and that's extremely exciting. And I mean, we, I think there are, there are a number of um, different projects. Syndicate DAO is one that comes to mind that is kind of working in that direction. Right. Um, and that's the beginning, right? Like all of these projects are like the, the vision in the very long term is that now that you have software and now that you're making the kind of the, the, the tools for organizing human behavior 10,000 times or 100,000 times more efficient, um, the kinds of, the kinds of, um, patterns that you can now build can be much more interesting and much more complex and can be qualitatively different. And so I think what's very interesting is what people will do with the tools, what people will do with this newfound ability in the same way that when we had uh, the ability to send a message from point A to point B, namely like the postal system, improved by a million X mm -hmm. in terms of its throughput and cost, namely with TCP IP, like the protocols of the internet, we ended up with something that's much, much richer than just a postal message system that's a million times faster. We ended up with the full breadth of the internet. Uh, and so same thing here, you make the, the ability to set up an organization, set up an LLC or a C-Corp a million times more efficient. What kinds of 
uh, coordination patterns could we come up with that that are actually more effective and better and are not restrained by the by the frictions of the of the traditional world? So that's I think was was very exciting is the fact that the design space is very rich. I think this is super interesting, and we spoke about this earlier. What's been really interesting to me is to see, you know, all these really smart engineers and builders who, in maybe a couple of years ago, would have joined a classic Fang-style company, are now working for a DAO or now working for a token. Um, not just here in the U.S., but in India and other parts of the world. That is just super, super interesting to see. Um, okay, so zooming out just a little bit, uh, you know, Anthony, I want to bring you in here. You know, the other kind of capability that is really interesting to me is just how you folks are thinking about the regulatory universe and helping educate and set context on interesting issues. So just talk to us about that and, you know, your role there. And also in particular, I think one interesting episode was, uh, um, um, you know, last year uh, and FinCEN and the uh, and the proposal on self-hosted wallet. I think that was one interesting, uh, uh, in, you know, one interesting version of that. Uh, sure, sure. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so I joined the firm uh, back uh, last fall to really help, uh, you know, the effort that Katie initiated to, to build up our regulatory and policy function. Um, and, uh, you know, we want to shape the discussion in D.C. We know regulation is coming, so we want to help craft it um, and really make it sensible. As, as, you know, Katie was saying earlier today on, on TV and CNBC, we don't we're not saying there should be no regulation. We're saying there should be sensible regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, regulation doesn't drive innovation out of the U.S. So, so that's, you know, the, the, why I joined, to really push that mandate forward. About a month after I joined, um, we had an attack from, uh, from the Treasury Department, from former uh, Secretary, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. On the eve of his departure, uh, we called it the Midnight uh, Holiday Rulemaking, uh, on December 18th, I mean, really days before Christmas Eve and the, and, and the holiday period, he put out this, he at FinCEN put out this proposed rule that would really restrict the use of self-hosted wallets. It imposed all sorts of reporting requirements and record-keeping requirements and well, something. Don't they normally give you like 40 days, Anthony? And they gave like 14. Right. They normally give deliberately you Deliberately before the inauguration. Like there's a whole like. Track. Right. I mean, it was crazy. Normally, yeah. I mean, there should be some, I mean, I was a regulator, so I know all about aggressive regulation, but you have to have due process and you have to hear from the community. Anyway, as Chris said, normally you'd have 60 days. The community mm -hmm. would have 60 days to comment and weigh in and so forth and engage with the regulators. Instead of 60 days, they basically gave us six business days because it was right before Christmas Eve and, and the comments were due on the 4th. So it was all a sham. There was no comment period. I, I'm and, curious, like, you know, what was the motivation or the thinking um, behind that? That's a very good question. And uh, it really seemed to be motivated by one individual from what we could decipher uh, because we met, I mean, and I think the whole point of the story is really just shows what we're able to do at A16Z. We basically mobilized um, a group of tech companies, VC firms, uh, interested parties. We gathered them, we organized them, and we led the charge mm -hmm. in against against FinCEN and Treasury. And we met with folks at FinCEN and DOJ. And what we learned, Sri Ram, is that most of law enforcement didn't agree with the proposed regulation because because the driving um, technology and users offshore and outside the U.S. would make it harder 
for law enforcement to prosecute cases. Because as we've been saying, the blockchain technology has been helpful to law enforcement. So it really seemed it was it was a mystery as to what was driving it. And it seemed to be uh, the secretary who was driving it. Anyway, long story short, we led this effort. We led the battle. We responded, you know, in the six business days. And, you know, my, my I heard all about this great holiday period. We get a 16 Z. That wasn't my experience the first year. Um, and uh, we did a comment letter. We led the charge and we actually got the comment period extended. So beyond Mnuchin's departure and we actually got them to take out the worst part of the proposed reg, which was that they were going to force you to report about what your, you know, like Coinbase would have to report, not only what their customers are doing, but their customers, customers, you know, counterparties. So we got the worst part taken out. And frankly, nothing's happened since. The whole thing mm -hmm. has really been paused. So the point of the story, I think, really shows is that we're building this regulatory policy group, not just for us, but for the industry. And I think that's a great example of, of what we can do. I mean, we can really step in, lead the charge, I think, and help shape the discussion. Mm -hmm. So actually, that is fascinating. And I'm curious now, uh, different administration here in the U.S., you know, what are the typical conversations you find yourself having behind closed doors? Well, cl Zooms, um, you know, what is on top of regulators' minds? What comes up often? Well, you we, know, we funny didn't you even say, do Zooms. I was just going to <laughs> just just say that Katie and I were in D.C. last month for a week. And it was what we were told. It was the first week of in-person meetings. And I think Katie and I and our, we had a few others with us. Um, we basically were the first in-person meetings in D.C. So I think that shows our commitment. And, um, and it was a great week. We met with senators. We met with agency heads. Um, you know, really the, the top, the top policymakers in DC. And it was a fascinating week. And I think what we learned is that there are efforts afoot, but it's very disorganized. You know, you're speaking with senators on one side of the house, they're telling you about a committee and a proposed bill. And then you speak with other senators, they have their own committee and a different bill. So I think there's a lot of chatter. I think there's a lot of discussion and desire to step in and regulate crypto. The problem is it's disorganized. And what we want to do is try to create some uniformity, find some clarity, and, and really hopefully shape some sensible regulation. If I'm curious, like, how would you sort of score the, not going to put you on the spot here, how, you know, when you think about like other countries, you know, who do you think is doing it right? Or who do you think is furthest ahead when it comes to uh, regulations in crypto? I don't really think anyone's done it effectively yet. Um, I think that, you know, you're seeing these sort of ad hoc efforts or attempts to regulate crypto. I think the problem is most regulators don't understand it well enough yet. You know, we were in D.C. talking about DeFi. DeFi is complicated. Most regulators mm -hmm. don't get it. They don't like it. They don't love it. They're concerned about it, but they don't really get it. And that's why we've been advocating for involving the community in, in creating any type of, re of, of regulation, because you have to understand it's regulated. And that's why our real initial effort is to educate, educate folks in DC, educate policymakers. We want to do it abroad as well. We feel we need to educate before we can really regulate. Um, we had, we had, it's so funny. We had these in-person meetings, you know, usually when you go into DC, it's very formal. They're in the Dirksen office building or the Rayburn building, you know, or they're in the Senate or they're in these agencies. But because of the timing with COVID, a lot of these, you know, uh, government officials took the meetings outside and it was a whole different tone. We had two senators, we have two senators, remember Anthony, 
bust out the wine for us as like a happy hour spread. It was. <laughs> the first time so I had to drink, a drink during a meeting on Capitol Hill. <laughs> but the, the other thing you realized is, wow, we do have a lot of work to do. And that's why, you know, we were, we'll be, we were building out the team even further, uh, you know, as we announced today um, on the policy and regulatory front. And we're going to continue to do that. But we realized how much work we had to do. I mean, there are projects in this space and protocols that I think even that kind of sophisticated tech audience listening in here has never heard of that are um, billions mm -hmm. of dollars right now in value. And it's just staggering. And and you can imagine, I'm not even making fun of folks in DC. I'm saying I was one of them, actually. And so I'm, what I'm saying is we just have, it's happening so fast. Right. And we as an industry feel like we have so much work to do to help um, keep these officials abreast of what's going on in the space. I think that's and, sad, and sadly, there's still, you know, among so many, there's still this min misconception that crypto is is purely used for illicit purposes. We met with one senator, well, I won't mention who, who really just had such an antiquated view. And this is an important senator. Katie was great jumping in about all the cases she prosecuted and how how the blockchain technology has helped. And 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 again, we just we need to correct the misconception in D.C. Um Actually, this is actually a very interesting segue. Uh, you know, Katie, I think you just, uh, and actually, uh, Katie, I think maybe you can, we can, uh, Aryan, I'm curious to get your take on this, which is, uh, you know, Katie just talked about how even people who are in the tech world may not be familiar with some of the stuff happening in crypto. And I think there's kind of like a large audience of folks. And I think I used to be one of them. I still might be one of them where we, you know, held crypto over the years. We might have written like a Hello World Solidity code, but we don't really know what a career in crypto might look like. What are fun problems to solve? So if for somebody listening in here, they work in the tech industry, they want to jump into crypto, what are some fun problems to solve? How they actually become part of the community? And you, Ariana, you've just done a fantastic job. You've been OG in this space. You know, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I mean, I think the way I'm thinking about it is crypto needs all kinds of different skill sets because eventually I view it as something that's just going to be a part of all businesses in the same way that now most companies, whether or not they're technology companies in the way you would think about it traditionally, use the internet and are internet enabled, crypto will become part of the stack as well. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we need amazing designers, we need amazing engineers, we need amazing marketers, like whatever your skill set is, there's definitely a role for it in crypto. And I think if anything, one of the things that, you know, has been lacking from the industry is really a diversity of skill sets. And we're now starting to see amazingly talented people flow in from all different backgrounds. And I think that's really a benefit. And, you know, from the fund side, we're seeing an increasing amount of overlap between crypto and other sectors. So crypto and consumer, crypto mm -hmm. and fintech. Um, and so, you know, I think all of these skill sets will really be needed to bring crypto into the next billion, two billion, et cetera, people. Um, and so, yeah, basically, you know, w whatever your skill set is, um, there's definitely a place for it in crypto. Uh, actually, that's super interesting because I know we've spoken about this, Ariana, which is, you know, talk to us about the intersection of crypto and consumer. Because I think when you look at something like uh, NBA Top Shots and Dapper, uh, I think of it as one of the first mainstream applications of crypto. But I'm, you know, just kind of doubling down there. You know, what do you see when you think about crypto and consumer in the future? 
Yeah. I mean, it's funny. So I, I first got into crypto in 2013 and I was definitely excited and, and really passionate about it. Spent way too many hours. It's, you know, in the middle of the night reading about cryptography, but man, the, the barrier to entry was high. I mean, you had to understand like, what is a hash? What is a Merkle tree? Like all kinds of crazy stuff in order to use even the most basic crypto wallets at that point in time. So um, you know, on the one hand, we've we've made a huge amount of progress since then. And it's it's really um, I think the space is a lot more approachable than it was back then. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're we're still in the early days of making great consumer experiences that can appeal to users who are not necessarily super crypto native. Um, but you know, with with NBA Top Shot, with some of the other games that have been launching, we're really seeing you know, crypto bridging into mainstream use cases. And I think that's super exciting um, because we've, you know, we've never really seen that. And I think at the end of the day, like, you know, folks should be able to interact with the crypto ecosystem without having to have a degree in computer science. And so, um, you know, we're, we're now at the phase in which that's becoming more possible than it was, you know, five or six years ago. And I think that's really exciting. Ali, I think you have something here as well on how to get into crypto. Oh, yeah. I think I, the one thing that I would add is that um, like I think one phenomenon with crypto is that crypto has many sides to it. And so one failure mode that I think I've seen many times is that you can approach crypto from the wrong side for you, such that uh, you kind of get turned off by it because it doesn't speak to you in the right way or it, it kind of rubs you, rubs you the wrong way. And it's easy to then go forth and dismiss it and just assume that there's nothing there. And uh, I think to make this a little more concrete, like if you think about it, crypto is at the same time this computer science innovation that solves this mm -hmm. outstanding consensus problem. And this this was the side that spoke to me when I first discovered like the Bitcoin white paper, the fact yes. that there's like a tentative solution to the Byzantine generals problem. And that's one way to begin to look at crypto. But it also at the same time has this like crypto anarchic or cypherpunk side to it where like you're like like a hardcore libertarian and you like the, the fact that you're now able, able to have a form of sovereign money and sovereign store of value that you that you control. And that's another whole dimension and another culture, another way to look at the space. And then there's also like more recently, like there are there are kind of um simply like more like more of a general technology movement than a software movement. And the fact that you can build new web applications that have new features. Uh, and and maybe kind of like these cypherpunk and and kind of crypto anarchic aspects are are less central, even though they, they still feature. Uh, in, in, in the kinds of things that people build. And so I think like the one thing that I would say is, is um, like I think that the reason that crypto is so counterintuitive sometimes and it gets dismissed so readily and so many people maybe don't, don't immediately get it and get excited by it is, is potentially that, that they're just maybe looking at it from the wrong side and a little bit more persistence, a little bit more patience and talking to a few more people about what it is that excites them about crypto might, might lead you to, to kind of find the, the right angle. Uh, to look at the space. Uh, uh, I mean, Katie, I think uh, that's actually, Ali, that's fantastically well articulated because I think I was one of them. Uh, I think what, what often happens is, to your point, somebody runs into crypto at one point of time over the last many years. Uh, you, you know, might have, you know, had a negative experience or you just thought it wasn't for you and you might have given up. And one of the things, amazing things for me personally is just kind of getting back into crypto, you know, writing Solidity code. Uh, and Ali has, by the way, has been amazing in kind of teaching and mentoring me on that. So I totally underscore that. Uh, Katie, I think you have a really interesting point about different disciplines and crypto. 
Yeah, I was just thinking, um, you know, one of the things that I think is interesting about crypto is a field for people who are what we we call crypto curious. You know, they're mm -hmm. curious about crypto, but they're not yet fully in the in the industry is how many different disciplines it brings together. You know, whether that's science, economics, law and policy, culture, technology, philosophy, there's really kind of all of those disciplines we see come together with crypto. And I think that makes this field and space really unique. Uh, I have to ask, you know, a lot of people listening here uh, are going to be founders, and this is probably for the room. Um, if you are, a, you know, if you're a founder, a potential founder listening to this, what do you folks wish founders would work on? What sort of, you know, what is a problem that you're like, hey, I would love to see more people work on this problem for any of you? I can start. Um, mm. I think we've been kind of exploring the intersection of gaming and crypto um, and particularly the metaverse. And I guess this answer might be a little bit out there. So <laughs> happy to pass the baton to others who have, you know, maybe a different perspective. Oh, no, no. We, we love the metaverse here on the show. <laughs> Amazing. Um, no, I'm just really excited about the potential there. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I'm I'm really excited to see what amazing entrepreneurs come up with in this category. I think there's just so much opportunity to create like truly unbelievable experiences that feel nothing like reality and just have a completely different um, feel to them and, you know, can bring in different elements of cryptocurrency and NFTs um, and just kind of create virtual worlds that really have a different feel to them. Um, and so far, I think, you know, we're starting to see some interesting experiments in that direction, but I just think there's such a rich canvas of potential there um, that I'm super excited to see what folks come up with in the next few years on that front. Uh, I love that. I think the um, uh, I think the other thing which I think is super interesting and earlier and you could talk about this is the intersection of I think identity and crypto or what social networks could look like uh, in you know uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think on that front, one of the the unsolved problems in DeFi is really this idea of kind of requiring over collateralization for loans. Um, and one of the missing pieces in order to solve that problem is this concept, as you mentioned, of identity. So, you know, who is this person who's requesting the loan? Are they trustworthy? Are they going to repay the loan? Um, and, you know, that's just, for example, I think one um, piece of the financial stack that is unlocked by this idea of, of a personal transferable identity. Um, but that, yeah, I think that's another fascinating point um, where I think we'll we'll finally see somebody solve it. But so far, um, I don't think anybody has, at least not yet to an extent where it's really gone mainstream. And so I think it's a, a very uh, exciting space for development. Uh, totally. I think the other, Ali, sorry, go on. Oh, yeah, no, I, I was just going to add, uh, I think that what Ariana said is spot on. And I think that generalizes across the space because so much about what crypto is, is about building the right incentive structures to make sure that the participants in any particular network or any particular system uh, behave according to the rules of, of the system and of that, of that protocol. And um, the problem today is that because we don't have a real uh, identity solution and we don't have a mapping between uh, a real human user and a, and a crypto address, like an Ethereum address, you basically, as a protocol designer, just have to assume that everyone is just an adversary and you you have to kind of operate under that assumption, which is a is a hard assumption to to live with. And if we did have uh, an identity system, then then I think we could build systems that are more sophisticated and kind of assume like an iterated game and assume a 
a kind of like level of reputation that different players in the in the ecosystem can earn over time. And I think like the kinds of human interactions that you can then enable through crypto would be richer. And uh, and the kind of the I think that the design space becomes larger as a result. I love it. I spent the weekend, uh, you know, just logging in with MetaMask on a bunch of sites and it kind of felt like a glimpse of the future where no one central entity had my identity. It was amazing. Uh, uh, thank you. That was so well articulated, Ali. Um, okay, I know we're all, we're actually a little bit over time. And Chris, I know we started with you, so I want to end with you. I want to give us, I want you to give us your thoughts on where you see all this headed, especially around the themes of, we've spent the last decade or so with uh, the internet being centralized uh, by a few companies, by a, maybe a, a country or two. Um, and this feels like we are on the cusp of the exact opposite. So tell us where you, where you see all this headed. Yeah, no, I think we're at a critical kind of crossroads as to, you know, does the internet become four or five companies kind of like TV and radio? And, you know, and we spend the next 50 years in like congressional hearings and antitrust and, you know, the, the kind of the giant companies that dominate the internet, like, are, you know, control things or, you know, do we push things back out to kind of the original vision of the internet uh, where it's decentralized, where the power lies at the edges, the money flows to the edges, you know, creative people, you know, we, I think we could, we're on the cusp potentially like NFTs and things of a creative renaissance where writers, you know, video game makers, podcasters, musicians are interacting directly with their fans, experiencing, you know, patronage, um, having a vibrant digital goods economy, um, or we could, you know, be stuck with, you know, algorithmic ads and pennies, you know, kind of the breadcrumbs that you get from the platforms today. And this kind of, you know, I don't know, this is not, uh, this is not the internet I signed up for. I think we took a wrong turn. I think the ad-based kind of algorithmic feed internet was not the right way to go. And we can still change that. And I think that the, the new kind of primitives that crypto creates are the best hope for that. And, uh, and these new kind of this new architecture and where we can create, you know, DAOs and like collaborative social systems, collaborative financial systems. So I, you know, I think everyone on stage here, we all believe it's very important, uh, but we, we, you know, we're just investors. We need people to do it. Like we, we don't do it ourselves. And so I would end with a, a banner ad of my own, which is if you're listening and interested in doing this, you know, we'd love to talk to you. We have, you know, if you're an executive who wants to join a company, we'd love to talk to you. If you're a founder who wants to get interested, you know, get involved in the space, we'd love to help you. We want to be an on-ramp for talented technologists who want to get involved. Like, please come. We need you. You know, you're the ones who do the real work. Like, we just invest in you. And, you know, we'd love to meet you and have you join the movement. I can't think of a better way to, uh, a better note to end this on. Chris, that was amazing. That is so well said. Uh, uh, I know we're way out of time. I want to, you know, that's a, probably such a beautiful note. Uh, everybody for listening uh, thank you so much. Uh, you know, this was such a special uh, episode. And I can just see, you know, we probably had one of our largest audiences of the week just hang out through it and it tells you just the, uh, uh, just kind of the, uh, the, the, the kind of the quality of the people that we have. Uh, to all of you, to, to Anthony, Ariana, Ali, Katie, uh, Chris, it's such a joy to uh, work with you. Um, and uh, you folks blow me away. And 
you know, I can't, you know, I can't find a better note to end on than Chris said. If you're, if you want to, they need you, and uh, if you're working on something interesting, you know, uh, you know who to reach out to. So, uh, everybody, thank you so much.